The scripture reading today is from 1 Kings 18, verses 30 through 39. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took twelve stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seas of seed. And he put the wood in order, and cut the bowl in pieces, and laid it on the wood. And he said, Fill four jars with water, and pour it out, pour it on the burnt offering, and on the wood. And he said, Do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, Do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And water ran around the altar, and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Well, good morning, everybody. This is one of these stories in the Old Testament that you just love. I mean, it has all the elements of a great story. It's got the intrigue of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. He's outnumbered. It's an underdog story, 1 versus 850. It has fire falling from heaven, God proving that he is God, the people chanting at the end, the Lord is God. It's an amazing story. And we're going through a series of these Old Testament stories, and one of the things I wonder when you read a story like this is, but what are we supposed to learn from this today? What are we supposed to take away from the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal today? You know, there were a couple of disciples that I think took the wrong message from this story. In the Gospels, Jesus is with his disciples, and they go into a town, and the town rejects them. And on the way out, the disciples are like, Jesus, you want us to just call down fire on that place? You want us to just ask God to send down a fireball? And Jesus is like, whoa, whoa, hey, no, cool your jets. That's not how we do things. They were called the sons of thunder for a reason, and Jesus reinterprets their vision for how God is going to act and prove himself through his cross. And so the message for us is, what do we take away from stories like this? And in Hebrews chapter 12, the author there says, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And right before that, he's written this chapter that's known as the Hall of Faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, you get this long lineage of people. By faith, Abraham left the land, not knowing where he would go. By faith, Moses, not wanting to be a prince of Egypt, suffered with the people of God. By faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. And all of these people fell just a little bit short of seeing everything they hoped for. And then he turns around and he says this, and since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, We should run the race that has been set out for us, looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And in this series, we've been talking about what does that word witnesses mean? 
We tend to think of witnesses as like we're surrounded by people watching us, right? This is how I originally learned this story was. We're surrounded by a bunch of people watching us, and you don't want to disappoint them, so be on your best behavior, right? That might have been a great parenting uh, lesson, but that's not really what this passage means. It's not witnesses in the sense of they're watching us. It's witnesses in the sense that we are watching them. They are witnesses of something like when you come to a court and you are a witness, you are testifying about something, and you are an expert about something, and you're sharing what you know with other people. These Old Testament prophets and saints are witnesses to us because they are experts in God accomplishing his promises. They are people who come and witness to us, you can trust God with what he says. You can depend on him, he comes through, he holds up his word, I will be a witness to you that God always honors what he says he will do. And this morning, Elijah is an amazing witness for the promises of God. Just as Elijah trusted God then, you can trust God now. Now, God shows up big time in this story. He comes down, consumes the offering, and we're left to wonder, why did they do this in the first place? Why were they gathered on Mount Carmel? Why were they assembling an offering? Why did God prove himself through fire falling down? So what I want to do is I want to pause at that moment in the story and go back and look at the characters of this story to set up what God is really proving to be faithful to in this story. Now, one of the most famous, at least for a while, one of the most famous sermons in American history was called Payday Someday. And it's by a preacher named R.G. Lee, who was a pastor for 30 years at Bellevue Baptist in Memphis, Tennessee. And in 1919, he was at a prayer meeting, and he was asked to give a little prayer devotional for the people who were there praying. And he gave a message that came to be known as Payday Someday on the story of Elijah and Naboth's vineyard. So that's actually a couple chapters after where we are today. And the people loved it so much, they said, you have got to turn this into a full sermon. This is like a five to ten minute devotional. They're like, we want to hear more. And so what he did was he stayed up all night that night and he wrote it down until two in the morning and he preached it the next day. And most people that do that, their sermons are not very good. But this sermon became one of the most well-known sermons in America. He traveled the country preaching it. They estimate between 1919 and when he died in 1978, he preached this message 1,200 times. (laughs) Can you imagine? 1,200 times. And what I love about this message is he, he does Naboth's Vineyard like a play in different scenes. And before the scenes, if you've ever been to the play or you go to an opera or something and you look in the little booklet that you get, a lot of times there's a character list at the front. And so in this sermon, he gives a character list. And what I want to do is as we introduce these characters, I want to read you some of his description of these characters. Because people like Ahab and Jezebel and Baal and Elijah are fairly unknown to us. But listen to the way he describes them. I introduce to you Ahab, the vile human toad who squatted upon the throne of his nation. The worst of Israel's kings. King Ahab had command of a nation's wealth and a nation's army, but he had no command of his lusts and appetites. Ahab wore rich robes, but he had a sinning and wicked and troubled heart beneath them. He ate the finest food the world could supply, and this food was served to him in dishes splendid by servants obedient to his every beck and nod, but he had a starved soul. See, Ahab, we get the description of Ahab in 1 Kings chapter 21, 
And it is unparalleled in First and Second Kings. He is the worst king in Israel. But here's why. It says, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. Now, if you just step back for a minute, Ahab was actually a pretty good king geopolitically. Actually, the nation of Israel, which is the northern kingdom at this point, really did well under Ahab. He had a strategic marriage to a powerful king in his region. He did some good things to build up the nation of Israel as a military and economic powerhouse. But the evaluation of the kings in First and Second Kings is always based on one factor— What did they do to serve God? Did they lead people to serve him, or did they lead people to serve other other gods? And Ahab stands alone among the kings up until this point as somebody who turned the hearts of Israel away from God and towards other people. Now, Ahab couldn't have done this bad a job on his own. He actually had to have somebody else named Jezebel, who he married, help him out. And R.G. Lee says about Jezebel, I introduce to you Jezebel daughter of Ethbel, king of Tyre, and wife of Ahab, king of Israel. A king's daughter and a king's wife, the evil genius at once in her dynasty and her country, she was infinitely more daring and reckless than was her wicked husband. Masterful, indomitable, implacable, a devout worshiper of Baal, she hated anyone and everyone who spoke against or refused to worship her pagan god. What Ahab did was he looked around and he said, who's the most powerful regional power next to Israel. And it was the king, Ethbaal, of Tyre and Sidon. And the Sidonians were just to the northwest of Israel. And so he goes and entreats the king to have a strategic marriage. He would marry Jezebel, and their nations would have an alliance with each other. Well, he probably didn't know what he was getting into. Jezebel is one of the shrewdest, most capable characters in the Bible. She is a woman unsurpassed in getting what she wants done. But the unfortunate thing about Jezebel, and this is why you don't hear of too many little girls named Jezebel today, is that she turned all of her considerable talent and effort and energy to leading people away from God to worship the god Baal. Now in Sidon, in this kingdom, one of the things that was really common at the time is the king's daughter would be the high priestess of their god. And so Jezebel, by the time she came to Israel, was already steeped in and already practiced in and already familiar with leading the religious cult of Baal. Now, here's one of the hardest things from going from their time to our time. I have never met anyone, don't know anyone, never heard of anyone worshiping Baal in 21st century America. So it's like, okay, if Baal was a big problem then, what's the big problem now? Now, Baal is a Canaanite storm god. He's actually not the most powerful god in their pantheon of gods. He's kind of second or third in command. But he gives rain to the ground and fertility to the crops. So his job is basically to make sure that you and I had food to eat, rain to water the ground to keep it in place, and uh, crops to grow. And you see Baal all over the Old Testament. It is the number one rival God for the people of Israel. So he's the son of the God Dagon. You might remember in the story of Samson, at the end of his life, he's in the temple of Dagon in the Philistine cities, and he pushes over the pillars, and all the priests of Dagon are killed. Dagon is the father of Baal. You might remember in the story of Gideon. Gideon gets 
kind of comes to prominence because he actually pulls down the statue of Baal and cuts off the Asherah pole that is in his town. And we get this picture in ancient Israel that there was always a rivalry between the one true God and Baal and his consort Asherah. To the extent that you see what's called syncretism in ancient Israel. Now, what is syncretism just means mixing two religions and doing a little bit of both. In the history of Israel, what we see is the people come in worshiping God, and then slowly over time, they worship God on Saturdays, and they worship Baal during the week. They worship God abstractly, they do the festivals, they honor him in word, but in order to make their crops grow, in order to get rain, they worship Baal in deed. What happens in Israel is slowly over time, they become less and less about the one true God, and more and more about which God do we need to worship to accomplish what we want. It's to the point that in 1 Chronicles 12, 6, we have a list of names, and one of the names is Baaliah, which would be totally insignificant in this list unless you realize that word means Baal is my Yahweh. Baal is my Yahweh. It's a picture of the kind of blend that the Israelites were fighting against in this period. People who were saying, you know what, maybe Yahweh and Baal are the same God. Maybe you should just worship both, and, and, and that way, if you're wrong on one, you could be right on the other. Or maybe if you would just worship Baal, our crops would grow, because at this point in history, it was the people worshiping Yahweh who were the problem. To the point that once you get Ahab in charge, there's a royal patronage. All the powerful people, if you want to be anybody in Israel at this point, you better pay lip service to Baal. One of the things Ahab did when he came to power, right after he got married, was he built a temple to Baal that the Israelites and the powerful people were supposed to go worship in. So at this time in Israel, the problem was, if you wanted to worship Yahweh alone, it would cost you dearly. It would cost you power, it would cost you money, it would cost you prestige, it would cost you your position. But if you wanted to worship Yahweh and Baal, then you could have all of those things. So the problem of syncretism in Israel with Baal is the same problem of syncretism we have. Worship God in the abstract, and then during the week, do whatever you have to to accomplish your goals. Pay lip service to whoever, give your heart to whoever, worship to whoever, cut corners wherever. You can pay lip service to God, but functionally, you're worshiping Baal or someone else. Whatever our fertility and rain God is, we are constantly tempted to split our allegiance. So in the midst of this, God sends a prophet. This is how it always works in the Old Testament. What are the prophets doing? Well, usually they're coming into a situation that God needs to speak truth to power. If you want just a quick definition of prophets, we tend to think of prophets as telling the future. Sometimes prophets tell the future, but prophets always speak God's word to the people that he sends them to. So whether it's the prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, or the prophets like Elijah and Elisha, their role is to stand before God, hear from him, take his word, and speak it to the people who need to hear it. And in this story, it is Ahab and Jezebel and the people in power in Israel that need to hear from God. So God sends a prophet named Elijah. R.G. Lee introduces Elijah this way. He says, I introduce to you Elijah, the Tishbite prophet of the living God at a time when by tens of thousands the people had forsaken God's covenants, thrown down God's altars, slain God's prophets with the sword, holy anger burned within him like an unquenchable Vesuvius. This guy's really a wordsmith. 
He wore the roughest kind of clothes, but he had underneath these clothes a righteous and courageous heart. He ate the bird's food and widow's fare, but he was a great physical and spiritual athlete. He was God's tall cedar that wrestled against the paganistic cyclones of his day without bending or breaking. He was God's granite wall that stood up and out against the rising tides of apostasy. Everywhere courage is admired and manhood honored and service appreciated, he is honored as one of earth's greatest heroes and heaven's greatest saints. He was a seer who saw clearly, a heart who felt deeply. He was a hero who dared valiantly. And let me add one thing to that description. The central characteristic of Elijah's life is that he walked by the Spirit. He walked by the Spirit of God. He shows up in our narrative in 1 Kings chapter 17. It says, Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, We have no previous information about him. We don't know what happened before this. We don't know where he came from other than this description of his hometown. We don't know what he was up to. We don't know what his training was. All we know is God decided to send a prophet to speak to the king. And he shows up, and the first thing he says to Ahab is, I just want to let you know it's not going to rain again until I say so. Can you imagine this guy, one of the things about Elijah that's so distinct is his uniform that he wears, his prophet uniform. In fact, when you see John the Baptist show up in the New Testament, one of the reasons they know John is a prophet is because he's dressed like Elijah. He's wearing the same stuff. He's wearing this camel hair tunic and a belt, and he's been in the wilderness, so he's got this very crazed hair beard combo. He's been eating locusts and honey, and he comes in out of nowhere and begins to say, thus says the Lord God. That's what Elijah does. He comes in out of nowhere from the wilderness and he says, God said it's not going to rain until I say so. This is a direct challenge to Baal. Right? Think about this. Baal is the god of storms and crop fertility. And all of a sudden you have a prophet coming in and saying, you're not going to have any more rain. Not until Baal decides. You're not going to have any rain until God decides. All of Elijah's life is a challenge to this arrangement that Israel has where they can worship God and somebody else. Every bit of Elijah's life is a challenge to any rival that would set themselves up to do what only God can do. In fact, we know this because we know what Elijah's name means. It means, my God is Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. There are no others. There is no Baaliah. There is no other rival for God. My God is God. So Elijah shows up by the Spirit and just wanders in to the palace. And I've got to tell you, I just love this. In John chapter 3, it says, you know, the Spirit blows where it will. And you may not know where it came from, and you may not know where it's going. And I think this is the life of a prophet. This is the life of an Old Testament man like Elijah. And I'll tell you, I was at a camp this week up in northeastern Oklahoma outside of Grove. And it was this huge Baptist camp. It was really awesome. There were about 25 churches there. And uh, a lot of, there were about 15 kids that gave their life to Christ. It was just an amazing time there at camp. But I met this guy, and he's a pastor of a rural church. And I, I just asked him, I said, how did you get to your church? And he said, well, it's actually kind of a funny story. I had left my previous church, had bought some land, and just thought, I'll just kind of semi-retire, work this land. My wife and I will live out here and just see what God does. So he has this idea. He says, out in, on this land, there are a bunch of churches just kind of scattered around that are just rural churches. They're not in a town. They're just out on an intersection. 
He said, so what I would do in the mornings is I would get my coffee and my Bible, and I would go out to these churches, and usually there's either a bench or a picnic table or something, and I would just sit out in their front yard and read my Bible and pray for the church. And he's like, and you would be amazed. He's like, usually there was nobody there, but when somebody did come there, they were startled. Like, I was doing something wrong. Like, what are you doing here? And he's like, I'm praying. They're like, what are you really doing here? And he was like, so over and over again, I just keep getting asked to leave these churches. And he was like, I thought there's something wrong in this region that you see somebody praying for your church and your first instinct is there's got to be something up here. He's like, but then I went to this church and I sat down on their porch and I was praying and reading my Bible and this lady pulls up and she says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm just praying for your church. She's like, that's amazing that you're praying. Can you also preach? And he says, I sure can. And she says, like, can you preach on Sunday? And he's like, I sure can. He's like, that was two years ago. I preached at their service. There were six people there. A few weeks later, they asked me to be their pastor. And now we have 80 people at the church, and we brought 15 kids to camp. I thought, that's kind of the equivalent. I mean, by the Spirit, he shows up. The lady shows up. God's obviously been working in her. They're desperate. They're in desperate need of someone to shepherd their church, and he's the perfect fit. This is the life of a prophet. This is the life of somebody who's following God. You don't always know exactly what God's doing, but you're willing to say what God has told you to say to the people that he sent you and let God handle the results. That's the life that we live. We are walking by the Spirit, we're following God, and we're allowing him to bring the results that he desires. Through the life of Elijah, God does this very thing. He sends in places and he begins to undo the worship of Baal in the region. So the first thing he does, like I mentioned, is he says, actually, if Baal is the storm god, then I'm going to show that Baal is really not in charge of this, because only when Elijah says there will be water, will there be water. Well, this racks the land a little bit with a taxing drought. So for years, it doesn't rain, and the people are getting desperate. But what you see in Elijah's life is he's actually doing great. So after God brings him to Ahab, and after he predicts a drought, he sends him out into the wilderness. And in the wilderness, he drinks from this brook, and the ravens are bringing him food, like an early version of like Uber Eats, in the wilderness every day. I mean, just think about it. God is like so showing off here where he's like, okay, the land is in a famine, the king himself cannot provide food, and I'm just going to send raven messengers to my prophet and let him drink from a brook. In fact, things get so bad in this season of life in Israel that the king himself goes out looking for places to find water for his house and for his palace. And in the midst of this, God sends Elijah to a widow. And this widow in Zarephath, which is a God-forsaken land to these people, she feeds him. And he raises her son from the dead. And so everywhere Elijah goes, life is breaking out. And everywhere he is not, famine and drought and death are reigning. So God wages this challenge against Baal far before they get to Mount Carmel for the showdown. So Elijah comes and he decides to confront Ahab. And in fact, there's a guy in Ahab's court named Obadiah, and this is not the same guy as the book of Obadiah, but it must have been a common name back then, and he is a servant of God and a servant of Elijah. And this is wild. So what Ahab does is he decides to divide up their forces, and Ahab goes one way, and Obadiah goes the other way, and they're looking for water. But the text tells us that Obadiah is a servant of God. And while Jezebel has been saying that she's going to murder the prophets of God, Obadiah has been hiding the prophets of God in caves and feeding them and giving them water during the drought. 
What God is doing all over is just dismantling this belief that you need anything other than God. So then we get to the showdown. Elijah approaches Ahab, and he says, it's time to choose. Send your people to Mount Carmel, and I'll come to Mount Carmel, and we will see who is really God. Now, why did they pick Mount Carmel? If you go to Israel, it's up in the very north part of Israel, up near the border of Israel today, and then it would have been near the border of Israel. It's right in between Sidon, who Jezebel's family reigns there, and Israel, where Ahab and his family reign. And so what Elijah has done is basically take a middle point between the people of Israel and the people of the world, and he said, let's go up on that high place and let's have a showdown. And Elijah, when he gets there, he says, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? This is in chapter 18, verse 21. He addresses the people, and he says, if the Lord is God, then follow him. And if Baal is God, then follow him. But you can no longer do both. See, limping would have been a technical term to engage in a dance of celebration to Baal, but professing and giving lip service to Yahweh. So as I said earlier, for these people, it's basically, do you want to stay in your position of power? Do you want to stay in your position of influence? Do you want to choose Yahweh alone? Or do you want to continue in what you're doing but forsake Yahweh altogether? So the prophets of Baal go first. And in the story, there's 450 prophets of Baal, 400 prophets of Asherah. Baal and Asherah go together, and they are doing everything in their power to get Baal to answer. They are dancing, they are cutting themselves, they're going through all these religious rites, and nothing is happening. In fact, the text is emphatic about how this goes. In verse 26, there was no voice, no one answered, but they limped around the altar that they had made. And then Elijah, Elijah's pretty confident in his position here. Elijah starts mocking them, saying, maybe you should cry louder. He can't hear you. Or he's thinking, or he's relieving himself, or maybe he's on a journey and just can't respond right now. Perhaps he's asleep, and maybe you should awaken him. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves as was their custom until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the offering of oblation, but there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. So now it's Elijah's turn. And Elijah is really doing this up, because here's the thing. He's going to put this altar back together, and these are big stones. These are probably over 100 pounds each, and he puts these 12 stones together, and he puts a whole bull on the top, and then he starts pouring water all over the bull. And so he pours all these jugs of water on, and he says, do it again, do it again, fills up the trench. What he wants to show is if God decides to move, there's nothing that can stop it. If God decides to do something, nothing, no other foreign God, no act of nature, no nothing could stop God. The other thing is he doesn't want there to be an excuse. Like there was a down power line, I saw a spark, I think that's what caught the bull. It was a technicality, it looked like God, but it really wasn't him. He wants to make sure that everybody knows there's only one way this could have happened. God acted decisively to conquer Baal, to conquer the people who were worshiping him, and to prove that he is God. So Elijah pours water all over the altar, he soaks it, and then he gets down on his knees and he asks God, O oh Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. What Elijah is doing is exactly what we're doing, looking at the witnesses of God's faithfulness and saying, do it again. Do it again. 
O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know, O Lord, that you are God and that you have turned their hearts back. I want you to just think for a moment about what exactly Elijah wants in this prayer. He doesn't just want God to do a miracle so that we could all be amazed by it. He doesn't really want that. He doesn't even want to be vindicated so that people are like, whoa, there are 850 other prophets, but Elijah is really in a league of his own. He doesn't want that either. What he really wants is for God to prove himself in a way that it shows that Elijah didn't think this up, he didn't dream this up, he's not testing God, he's doing what God told him to do, and that by doing that, God was going to bring people to himself. I would argue that one of the things that we should take away from this story is not just that we can expect God to do these amazing, miraculous things when we put him to the test. I don't think that's the lesson. I think the lesson is, if God calls you to do something, God calls you to speak something, God calls you to stick your neck out for him, the purpose is always to bring other people to himself. The purpose of our lives, everything that God calls us to do, is that we could be with him and that other people could be with him. So when God does something that surprises us, when he does something that's risky, when he does something and calls us to something that's uncomfortable, the end goal is not that we would look like amazing, great Christians. A lot of times he's going to put us in a situation that makes us look weak and unsure and forsaken until God moves, fire falls, and people turn and say, God is God. There is only one God, the Lord, Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who sent his son to die on the cross. That is God. And whenever we're in a situation that God has put us that's uncomfortable, whenever we're in a situation where we're suffering, this is what we've got to remind ourselves. Our goal is that people would come to know him. What Paul says in Philippians is, I, my earnest prayer is that in my life, whether in life or in death, that I would know him, that I would trust him, and that through that, through my witness, the gospel would be preached. And so our lives take on a new role, like Elijah's, and he bends down and he calls for God to answer, and God sends down fire. And this fire doesn't just like spark and light the bull. This fire devours the bull, laps up the water, burns the stones, gets the dust burned up. And many of you guys know Chuck Bokel, who's in our congregation, he's just not here today. He has a PhD in combustion from the University of Pennsylvania. And he wrote a paper on this story about what this fire must be like. This is just fascinating. So he, he wrote, if you were going to have a spark or a fire come down and devour a bull like this, and devour the water, and devour the stones, how much energy would you have to have? And when he's here next, you should ask him about this. This is a fascinating paper. And he comes up with 16 million kilojoules of energy. Now, that might be good if you have a PhD in combustion. I have no idea how much energy 16 million kilojoules is, so I had to convert this into something that I could understand. Just to give you a picture, 1 million kilojoules is like a lightning strike. So this is like 16 lightning strikes on this bull. This is like 100 pounds of TNT being set off on this bull. This is enough energy to turn carbon into diamonds. And this is like the equivalent of a tomahawk missile hitting this altar. <laughs> so you think God wanted to leave any question as what was going on in this story. 
God sends down a fire that no man could have ever produced to light this offering to bring glory to his name. The people after this begin to chant, the Lord is God, the Lord he is God, which is amazing when you remember, and I wish our Bibles would play this out a little bit better. That's Elijah's name. That's Elijah's name. They're not just chanting Elijah, they're chanting the Lord is God. He's done what he promised. He's fulfilled his word. He is always who he said he will be. The Lord is God, the Lord is God. And Elijah, from that point on, doesn't see many converts. That's the weird ending to this story. You have this amazing, triumphant act of God, this miracle that breaks out, and after that, Israel just continues to do what it's doing. Now, to close, I want to bring to your attention, we actually see Jezebel and Elijah again in Scripture. After this story, Jezebel issues a threat, and she says, Lord, help me if I don't make you like those prophets of Baal that died on Mount Carmel by this time tomorrow. And Elijah, even after seeing God do what he did, was terrified. He runs out into the wilderness, and he doesn't really finish very well. He doesn't, as Hebrews says, see what he hoped that he would see. He doesn't see the full promise of God. Now, we see Jezebel again, we see her name again in the book of Revelation. So if you've, if you've studied the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, in chapter 2, verse 20, we have a woman in the church of Thyatira who's called Jezebel. And it makes you wonder if she called herself that or if Jesus and John are calling herself that. Because if she called herself that, that's a little bit rich. I mean, you've got to know when that person is teaching at your church in Thyatira that things are suspect. But she is a Jezebel. Whether her name is Jezebel or not, she is a Jezebel. Why? Because what she is doing is teaching people that it's okay to worship God and serve other gods as well. See, what happened in Thyatira is what happens in every city, whether it's ancient Israel or Thyatira in the first century or Oklahoma City or Tulsa or Dallas or anywhere around here today. What happened was it was a craftsman city. It was a guild city. And if you wanted to be involved in the city, what you had to do was you had to pay and participate in guild activities. And one of the things that they would do in these ancient guilds is you wouldn't just pay money, you would go to this ceremony, and in the ceremonies, you would do all kinds of crazy worship, sexual stuff. And what Jezebel was telling people is, it's okay if you come here on Sunday and go to the guild meetings during the week, just don't really mean it in your heart when you go to the guild meetings. It's okay if you come here and worship God and then do what you've got to do to make money because God wouldn't want you to lose your job. God wouldn't want you to be a, you know, an outcast. God wouldn't want you to have worked so hard on this career and then not be able to get any contracts. So Jezebel is teaching people that it's okay to do those things during the week if you just pay lip service to God on Sundays. This problem is perennial in human history. But we also see Elijah again. In fact, it Elijah mysteriously disappears from the pages of the Old Testament until the book of Malachi when it says Elijah is going to come again before God decisively shows who he is. Before the day of the Lord comes, Elijah will pave the way. Now Jesus does say Elijah has come and we look and we see that John the Baptist, sure enough, was preaching the same message, repent, believe in God, he's the one true God, come repent of your sins and you can be a part of God's family. But Elijah actually shows up again. Do you remember this? On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus goes up and he takes a few disciples with him and all of a sudden he begins to radiate with glory. And it says that with Jesus, 
there appeared Elijah and Moses. And they were talking about Jesus' coming death. And what the disciples take from that perspective is Jesus fulfills everything that Moses had longed for. All of the law, all of the history, all of the journey to the promised land was pointing to Jesus Christ. And they also take away that everything Elijah was hoping for, that people would realize that God is God alone, and he is sufficient, and he is all you need, and he will fulfill all of his promises to you, finally found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Isn't God merciful and wonderful to take somebody like Elijah who didn't see what he hoped for? Even after the prophets of Baal were defeated, he didn't see what he hoped God would do. In fact, he was in the promised land when the people were about to leave, and Moses didn't get to go in the promised land because he disobeyed God, and God brought both of them to the promised land to see his son before the cross. So the end of the Elijah story, the end of the prophets of Baal showdown, is not fire falling on a mountain. The end of the Baal story is God sending his son, dying a death that we never would have predicted, paying for our sins with his blood so that he could prove once and for all, our God is God. There is no God like him. There is no God who sent his son to take on flesh, to be humiliated, to die, to rise, so you can be with God forever. That's what Elijah's name means. Our God is God. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Father, thank you that somebody like Elijah who saw such amazing things didn't even see half, even a tiny fraction when you sent fire of what he saw in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to remember that the greatest miracle we've seen is that you came for us, that you paid for us, that you rose again for us, that you are coming back for us. Father, remind us that in his life walking by the Spirit, in our life walking by the Spirit, our goal is to bring you glory, to bring people to come to know you, to behold your face, to resist the temptation, to do whatever works, to keep our status, to keep our power. Lord, remind us that the only thing that matters is that your promises find their yes and amen in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.